Crested in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Friday, and welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. As you can tell, this is not Al. This is uh, his producer, Bryant. If you were listening to Al yesterday, you may have noticed his throat was a little, a little bit of a frog in the throat and hopes to wake up this morning and have it better, and instead the frog got bigger. So, uh, Lord willing, he'll be back Monday, but... We are today taking some time to look back on a few conversations. First off, uh, our good friend Teresa Tamio joining us. Lessons from her Italian mother, lessons on life. Uh, you've probably, all you have to do is just look, look through your Facebook feed or look through the news headlines, see the world getting crazier. It's getting crazier in very serious ways, obviously. Also getting crazier in slightly less serious, maybe dumber ways where we've got people, you know, on TikTok eating Tide Pods and all kinds of nutty stuff like that. And uh, we're in a time where right is wrong, wrong is right, up is down, and the only thing that's unacceptable is refusing to accept anything and everything under the sun is acceptable. Uh, Teresa Tamio might have a solution. Wisdom from her street-smart Italian-American mother. She'll be joining us. Uh, her book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, came out last year. And fun story, we actually recorded this interview when she was in Italy, the home of her, or, or ancestral home of her family. And uh, she'll be giving us some little lessons on life throughout this first hour. And then in hour two, of course, this weekend we are celebrating Epiphany and the Search for the Magi. One of the most beloved images of the nativity story, the uh, three kings riding their camels following the start of Bethlehem. But uh, little is known about them. Were they kings? Were they magi? Were they wise men? What do we actually know? And in fact, a lot of modern scholars have actually just dismissed them as pious legend. Well, Father Dwight Longenecker is going to join us looking at evidence for who the wise men were and why we can really believe that they actually visited the infant Christ. This is a, a story that he explores more fully in his book, Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. And of course, we'll have Father Longenecker's book available for you in the online store after the program. So let's uh, take some time in this hour looking at lessons on life from Teresa Tamia's street-smart Italian-American mother coming up after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, January 5th. It's the Feast of St. John Neumann. Today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. A vigil in Perry, Iowa, after a deadly shooting took the life of a sixth grader at a local high school. In a time of darkness, resilience was the message. We are very strong. We'll get through this because we have each other. The shooting happened yesterday during the first day back for students at Perry High School, which is around 40 miles northwest of Des Moines. There's a handful of gunshot victims who are in the hospital. The 17-year-old shooter took his own life and also left behind an explosive device that was diffused. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said their hearts are heavy and gave her condolences. A suspect in the stabbing death of a Nebraska Catholic priest is being ordered to stand trial. Keir Williams appearing in Washington County Court where he faced first-degree murder charges. 
He allegedly stabbed and killed Father Stephen Guckshell in a Fort Calhoun church rectory last month. Prosecutors have not said if they're going to pursue the death penalty. House Republicans are looking to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena to appear for a closed-door deposition. The House Oversight Committee will meet next week to prepare the contempt resolution for a vote. Republicans subpoenaed the president's son as a part of their impeachment inquiry into Biden's family business dealings. And an earthquake has struck Southern California. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the 4.1 magnitude quake hit at 10.55 a.m. local time and was centered in Lytle Creek, a sparsely populated area in the Cajon Pass, about 60 miles east of Los Angeles. Posts on social media show that the shaking was felt throughout Southern California. There are no reports of damage or injuries. I'm Phil Hewlett. It's the second earthquake in Southern California this week. From your Alvin Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta thanking you for being with me. We've got time to talk now with the longtime friend and colleague, Teresa Tamio. She is the author of many books, and most recently, Everything's Coming Up Rosy. Ten Things My Feisty Italian-American Mom Taught Me About Living a Godly Life. Teresa spent more than 30 years uh, in television, radio, and newspaper, 19 of those years, working in front of a camera as a reporter and anchor in the Detroit market. In the year 2000, she left the secular media to start her own speaking and communications company, Teresa Tomio Communications. And, of course, you hear her regularly every morning on Catholic Connection, produced by Ave Maria Radio and distributed by EWTN. T, good to have you back here. Hey, great to talk with you. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. Uh, I, You know, your mom was an absolutely delightful woman, and um, you've picked up so much of her in your mm-hmm. conversation, in your attitudes. And I, as I was thinking about this, uh, my parents, who passed away just in the last few years, uh, they, they did not comprehend uh, the world that we were presently living in. They, right. they, thought, they, they thought things had gone off the rails. And um, how did your mom perceive what was going on in America? I think pretty much the same way, but she was so practical about everything. And, and I'm, I'm writing this article for uh, the National Catholic Register, and, and I'm thinking about it. And I'm thinking about this Surgeon General's report that came out last week where he's saying that we need to reach out to people, answer the phone when a friend calls, invite somebody to dinner, uh, be nice to people. And I'm hearing my mother's voice in my head for crying out loud. You need the Surgeon General to tell you that? Pick up the phone and call your sister. I mean, this common sense about how we have lost our way. And I I just think it was our parents' generation where they went through so much, they saw so much, but they continued. They pushed through, and they just learned how to deal with life. And we need to get back to that, and that's why I put it down in a book. Yeah. Now. It's it's a it's a delightful book. Ten things my feisty Italian American mom taught me about living a godly life. Everything's coming up rosy. Tell us a little bit about your mom's background. 
Well, my mom uh, is a first-generation Italian. She, her family, her parents moved to Italy. They emigrated very early on in the 1900s, and they raised uh, 10 children in Jersey City, New Jersey. So I was actually born there. We moved to Michigan. I was five. But she came from a very big, large, loving Italian-American family. But they were poor, like many immigrants that came over. And so there were a lot of struggles, but there were so many funny stories and so many lessons. And so she grew up in this very loving environment. And then we had a very traumatic thing happen to us when, when I was a child where the apartment in which we were living uh, exploded, actually, and wow. two people died. And so our family was actually, I always, my father used to always joke and say we were blown out of Jersey into Michigan. <laughs> and so there, that was a very traumatic situation for my mom. I mean, she had a you know, wonderful husband, my dad, and she had a family, and she was so happy about having children because that was the main goal of her life, to have kids. But then everything was uprooted because there, were, there wasn't a good job available for my father at the time, and he was recruited by an engineering firm in Michigan. So she had some suffering, and then she lost my sister several years before she died. She lost my father, and then there were other things that she struggled with in terms of her own insecurities. And so writing the book, I really put myself in her shoes. And at the same time, through all of this, she never lost her sense of humor. She never lost her feistiness. She never, never lost her outgoing personality or her joy. And she always persevered. I mean, you know the movie Steel Magnolias, which I absolutely love. It's a great movie. I always think yeah. of my mom and in a great movie and her sisters and my grandparents as steel tomatoes, right? <laughs> because they, they really from the Italian American culture, very similar to the South, people with strong roots where you just you move forward, you learn from the pain, you grow through the pain and you move on. They weren't ashamed of the so roots. So that's kind either. of a summary of her life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, they weren't ashamed of the roots. And <laughs> And, and I was really struggling with whether I was writing the book to put the accent in there because the accent, her Jersey accent, that East Coast accent, yep. she never lost. And you knew because you talked to her many times. Sure. And I didn't want it to be offensive to anyone, but it made it, I think, that more appealing. And I noticed that when I, then I would talk about her when I would give a presentation with the same title, 10 Things I've Learned About Living a Godly Life, that people really appreciated the culture. So if someone is from the South or from the East Coast or from Canada and has that beautiful accent from their area, that's not something to be ashamed of. That's something to be proud of. So I, I tried to build that in to the book and into my talks because that's part of who she was. Yeah. And where I grew up, uh, Italian-Americans were probably the most common ethnicity around us. Uh, the Cartronudos, the Espositos, the Lombardis, you know, the Dorseys, uh, old, old Italian name. Um, and so it's always struck me that there's something very proud about uh, the Italian-American uh, identity here. And uh, mm -hmm. how much, I mean, did she see herself as, did she have to, see herself up front as an Italian-American, or was she just herself? I think she was just herself, but I yeah. think she was very proud of her Italian culture right. and the food, and, and my, my father also being a full-blooded Italian-American, she married into another Italian-American family, so she certainly enjoyed her heritage, but it was more about being rosy and that fun personality and that feistiness that she had and, and being part of that big family. What, but you can never get away from, especially Italians, because it's a very strong bond. But she was more about being rosy, I think. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, how did she regard her Catholic faith? Central part of her life. And she, even though she wouldn't have considered herself a theologian, she loved to pray the rosary. 
She loved to read. I would bring books home from Catholic school, and she loved to read them. As a matter of fact, she named me after St. Teresa of Avila because she didn't know too much about the saint, but she liked the spelling. She thought it was more Mediterranean, T-E versus <laughs> T-H. And so yeah. she named me after Teresa of Avila. And one day when I came home with a book of the saint, she was reading about Teresa of Avila, and she learned that she talked a lot, got in trouble a lot for talking too much. And her personality, she was very feisty as well. And so she looked up at me. She's sitting on the couch. She's reading this book, and she's looking down. She's looking up, and she says, Off for crying out loud, it's providential I named you after her after all. I'm like, okay, Mom. I think that's a compliment somewhere. <laughs> right. right. No, but no, yeah, her Catholic faith was very important to her. She was very involved in our parish in southeastern Michigan, St. Joan of Arc, which is still my home parish. Everybody knew my mom. Everybody knew my mom. Everybody loved my mom and my dad. And so it was a big, big part of her life. Big part of her life. You know, it's interesting because... It, that was just, again, one of the ways that people identified themselves. They identified themselves by their parish. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, it was just, it, again, something that was assumed that you would be a member of a parish. Uh, and you, I was raised Catholic and never thought of not being Catholic when I was growing up until I was in my mid-teens. But um, mm-hmm. it's just funny, the, the, the kind of things that were accepted as part of one's identity, Catholic uh, background, uh, you know, ethnicity, um, where you're from, all of those things which were so important to our parents' generation now seem to be up for grabs, uh, as though we can right. somehow reinvent ourselves every 10 years or so. And um, mm-hmm. your, your mom, uh, your first chapter here talks, uh, off it up to God and put it at the foot of the cross. That was big for her. Big for her, and she said it to us all the time, not just when we were going through a, a bad time, whether we were ill or had a headache or a stomachache. I can remember when she said that to me once when I when I had a stomachache. I'm like, she'll offer it up to God and put it at the foot of the cross. I'm like, why would God want my stomachache? What is that all about? <laughs> and I did not understand what she was trying to tell us in terms of, okay, give it over to God, pray through it, and, and do something with it. You know, Don't just sit there and complain. Do something with that suffering that you have right now. That is redemptive suffering. Mm-hmm. It's a very deep mm-hmm. theological teaching in the church. And she would mention it not only at those times when we weren't you know, physically feeling well, or maybe we had a problem at school with a friend, but she would remind us of it all the time. In other words, the reason I started the book out with that is all things Christ, everything has to start at the foot of the cross. And yeah. I find myself thinking about that so often offer it up to God and put it at the foot of the cross. Every single thing we should do every single day is go to the cross. Lord, I am yours. There was St. Teresa of Avila says, I was made for you. What do you want of me? And that's why, again, I felt it was really, really important for me to start out with that saying that I heard so many times growing up, offer it up. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful that that was part of your family growing up. Um, we didn't have anything like that in my family, unfortunately. Uh, there were no uh, sayings, slogans, uh, ad- bits of advice that were uh, integrated into our family from Catholic teaching. So I, I think that's really a blessing that you had that. Uh, did she have um, issues like physical pain that she had to, quote, offer it up? 
Yes, she had quite a lot of physical pain. As a matter of fact, uh, she died from a complication, much like her mother, of rheumatoid arthritis and congestive heart failure. Mm. And I used to call her, I nicknamed her Asbestos Rose at one point because she just <laughs> seemed to put up with pain. She used to drive me crazy. We'd have these arguments. I'd say, Ma, go to the doctor. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'll offer it up. But I, And I get the fact that you have to offer it up. I said, Ma, you could still offer it up and go to the doctor. I don't right. want you to be sick. This is a constant, constant tay-to-tay we would have an argument. But she had such a tolerance for pain. She really did, especially the arthritis toward the end of her life was very, very severe where she was in a wheelchair. But again, she never lost her joy. She never lost her joy. And and it was really, I think... um, powerful for me to see the sufferings that she went through. I really thought, Alan, my sister Donna died of cancer in 2016. She was her oldest child. Or my father died, and you were at my dad's funeral. You remember that that amazing uh, celebration we had for my father. She was so in love with my dad. They had an amazing marriage, and she used to call him her boyfriend as well as her husband. (laughs) I thought, that's it. She's done. And when when daddy's gone, she's done. Nope. She lasted another 10 years. And I thought when my sister died, my gosh, she lost a husband and then a child within a few short years. But no, she just, she kept going. And so in addition to that physical pain with the arthritis that was with her for a very long time, she started suffering from it in her late 60s, early 70s. And and the emotional pain from losing her husband and her daughter, I thought, well, she's not going to last very long. But she did. She hung on and and she enjoyed life the best she could. Yeah. Talking with Teresa Tamio about her most recent book, Everything's Coming Up. Rosie, it's a wonderful memoir and a bit of advice that she's uh, offering Ten Things My Feisty Italian-American Mom Taught Me About Living a Godly Life. And uh, we actually started out the segment, uh, Teresa pointing out the Surgeon General's uh, statement that uh, we were in a a loneliness epidemic right now Mm -hmm. and that it poses risks as deadly as smoking. And I think that's a great backdrop to the kind of uh, conversation we're having here where uh, Teresa's mom regularly offered advice that is just basic to life. Uh, We're going to continue the conversation and again uh, take a look at the role that faith played in uh, Teresa's mom's life and the importance of it for our own sanity. I think that's what I was trying to get at here. We seem to be a nation uh, that's going insane and we want to come back to those basic truths that held people together and allowed them to serve one another and enjoy one another and that's certainly true of uh, Rosie. I'm Al Cresta, going to continue with Teresa on the other side of the break. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. I often have people ask me, aren't you scared when you talk about the issues such as abortion or uh, all the different ideologies, especially the gender ideology? I say, I'm scared of what I don't say if I'm not using this platform that God gave me wisely and well, if I'm not sharing information with people, if I'm not sharing the truth of the Catholic faith, I'm going to be held accountable, as is any one of us who has a platform. And we all have a platform. The sizes and the extent are different. But every single person, especially if you have a computer and if you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, you have a platform. And so we're all responsible to evangelize. And we make be fearful But we move through that fear with trust that God is with us. He tells us he will give us the words. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. What three virtues are embodied in the first commandment? 
the Catholic Catechism, paragraphs 2084 through 2086, tell us that the first commandment encompasses the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. In this commandment, God calls us to worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. When we say God, we confess our belief in a constant, unchangeable being, always faithful and just, without evil. It naturally follows that we accept his words and thus have complete faith in him. Since he is almighty, merciful, and beneficent, how could we not place our hope in him? Finally, who could not love a creator who has poured out his love, his goodness, and his gifts on us? This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Father Benedict Groeschel I often go back to my childhood. In church, we love to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band. And I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child. But I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular, and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Teresa Tamio. Her new book, Everything's Coming Up Rosy, 10 Things My Feisty Italian-American Mom Taught Me About Living a Godly Life. And uh, we've been, again, enjoying Teresa's remembrance of her mom. And, of course, her mom lives very much in you, uh, Teresa. Mm-hmm. You're very mm-hmm. much a product of Rosie. Dominic says I'm turning into Rosie. Yeah. <laughs> the first time he said that, was that a compliment? <laughs> no, actually it was not. But we'll, we'll save that for another show. Yeah. That? <laughs> I remember when I was told I was turning into my father. I did not like to hear that. Oh, so, my goodness. That's um, funny. T- talk to me about um, how she understood the role of the Blessed Mother. Oh, the Blessed Mother. Or she would say the Blessed Mother. <laughs> 
M-U-T-H-A. Yeah. She really, she loved Mary, and we had beautiful images of Mary. And there's a very special story that I share in the book associated with um, my mom and the Blessed Mother. So when the explosion happened in Jersey City, and, and I actually, you can actually look it up online. There's pictures of it. Uh, it was terrible. It was a funny story. I'll real quick, a, a little side note. So when the apartment exploded, a WABC TV in New York came over from Manhattan to Jersey mm. City to do the interview. And I was actually in my father's arms. And he said, see, you were meant to be a TV reporter. That's the first time you were on TV when I was three and a half, four years old. <laughs> But anyway, she had this beautiful white Hummel statue of Our Lady that my father had brought back. He was in the Merchant Marines and had been sailing back and forth on the SS United States. And whenever he would stop in a port, he'd try to get her a gift. And she loved the the brand Hummel of the different, you know, um, beautiful porcelain figurines. And Mm -hmm. so he brought her back this beautiful statue of Our Lady, this white Hummel statue. And she had it on a particular shelf in the living room in the apartment. And when the explosion happened... For whatever reason, I mean, uh, half of the building was gone. Our apartment was not destroyed totally, but there were things that were greatly damaged. But that statue survived. Wow. And she took it to Michigan with her, and then she gave it to me before she died. And so Our Lady was always very present in her life. She always felt very close to her. And so that's why she'd always say, remember, the Blessed Mother is watching you. And I'd roll my eyes and say, oh, here we go. She usually say that to us before we went out on a date. Yeah, right. We're going out to hang out with our friends. How are you going to do anything that's not you know, good when you've got that in your head, right? right. You've got this image of our, our beautiful lady staring at you, you know, over your shoulder or whatever. But if you think about that, if you think about what she was trying to do, how really intelligent she was in terms of I, I wouldn't say it's it's about guilt, but trying to remember that it's important that your actions matter and you have someone other than yourself to whom you have to answer. Right. There is a higher authority. Yeah. And what would Our Lady do? How would you feel? How do you think the Blessed Mother would feel if you were doing this, that, or the other thing? And also the reverence for the Blessed Mother that she had and the love that she had and the closeness she had, things she was trying to impart on us. So she was very close to Our Lady. It was a big, big part of her faith. You know, this is this idea of... Uh accountability, the idea that there is someone to whom we will answer, is, uh, again, uh, uh, just accepted by uh, our parents' generation. Right. Um, And it it runs through everything. There's a right way to do things. There's a wrong way to do things. And you want to do the right thing because that's what makes everybody flourishes better Mm -hmm. if you're trying to do what's right. Um, Your chapter on Listen to Your Mother uh, Mm -hmm talks about the beauty and benefits of recognizing and respecting authority, especially the authority of God in the church. Did she spend, uh, how did she communicate to you the significance of the Catholic Church as an institution? Um, was it just accepted? I mean, that was just the way, that's the reality, you know, everybody's it was Catholic. Ex- yeah, it was accepted, but also she was very determined, both her and my father, to make sure they could send us all to Catholic school. Okay. And, and it wasn't as expensive, obviously, as it is at some places now, but, but they, we were middle class, we were not wealthy by any means, and we didn't want for anything, but, you know, my parents did struggle at times to, to, to do more to make ends meet. And so it was a sacrifice for all three of us to go to Catholic school. And it's so interesting because what I learned in Catholic school and what I learned from my mom I mean, now it's it's the basis of my whole life. It took me a while to figure that out. Yeah. I strayed for, for a long time. But I remember when I made my first Holy Communion, 
Uh, there's a story in my book, Listening for God, about this, and, and you were in that book too, sure. where my mom took me into the, we, they had turned the classroom into a big uh, a Catholic store. Remember when we were little, we used to get the little, like the, uh, the girls would get the beautiful gloves or the little Mother of Pearl communion book or those girly things, yep. and the guys would get a, a communion book or whatever. Right. And so she said, okay, you're making your communion, you can pick any gift you want. And for whatever reason, instead of, which is, and you know me very well, I like my bling, right? I didn't go for any of the bling. I, I, went, I went head first. I marched toward a beautiful statue of Jesus. Wow. Holding, holding the chalice at the bottom, it said, Panis Angelicus. And I still have that statue today. Wow. And I think the reason that I was drawn to Jesus so much is because my parents instilled in me the importance of the sacrament of communion, the importance of Catholic school, and that this, this matters. And I, again, I still have that statue with me today, and that just resonates with me every time I, I receive Eucharist. Mm-hmm. That's, that's marvelous that you still have that. Mm-hmm. What a connection. What a connection yeah. through the, mm-hmm. the generations. Um, <clears throat> it's not all peaches and cream, you know. Yeah. Tell no. me about that. Well, that originally came from my mother's mother, my my grandmother, Anna, um, from uh, Basilicata, Italy, Anzi, Italy, a beautiful little town in the hills of, of southern Italy. And she would say this. My, my grandma, Tamio, came over when she was very young. She was a child when she came over with her mother from Italy, whereas on my father's side, they were much older. They were already married. But my, my grandma, Tamio, even though she spoke fluent Italian, she had a very strong Italian accent. And she may, or excuse me, an Eastern Jersey accent, because by the time she grew up, she had lost any of the Italian accent, although she still spoke the language. But she would always say to us, remember, it's not all peaches and cream, you know. In other words, <laughs> in this world... Things are not always going to go your way. You are going to have a problem here or there, and you can't control everything. You know, so as Mother Angelica would say, the cross is not negotiable, sweetheart. Yeah. Yeah. It's a requirement. And again, I think it's so basic, and we see so many stories. For example, I was just reflecting on that story that came out. I think it was in late March. Remember the one with the Cornell University students? When they were appealing to the administration, they signed this resolution. All the student bodies signed this resolution that they were demanding that the administration put trigger warnings in classroom content that they would find offensive. And if they found it offensive, they could get up and walk out without any repercussions. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And so in other words, you're in college and you can't learn how to debate, how to discuss, how to listen to another person. Isn't that what college is supposed to be about? That's that's the way. It was always, it, it, when I grew up, it was always the place of free inquiry, mm-hmm. free speech. It was a way of, if somebody said something that you disagreed with, that it was had a responsibility to challenge it and uh, to force the other person to make their argument. But the idea of, you know, finding it something uh, so offensive, uh, an idea so offensive that you need to be sheltered from it, that was just absolutely opposite of why yeah. one went to college. Right, right. And thank goodness Cornell pushed back and said, no, we're not going to do that because you need how to live, go figure, in a diverse world with people who may disagree with you from time to time. Or what are you going to do at work if your boss looks at you cross-eyed? I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. And that's what my mother would have said. She She would have said, it's not all peaches and cream, and it's not. And so I think, again, understanding, as Jesus told us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And again, Betty, everything ties together. I'm thinking about this now when I was writing the book and and really praying about it and putting myself in my mother's shoes, all of her lessons tied together. 
you know, it's not all peaches and cream, offer it up to God. And what does Jesus tell us? We will have trouble. We have to learn through it. So they're all connected with a sense of responsibility, a sense of the fact that there is going to be struggle. But at the end of the day, we still have God and we still have our joy. Yeah, no. And I mean, and, and there's, there's psychological studies that indicate that the capacity, the ability to handle hardship like that actually leads to greater human flourishing. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned a study here in the book, uh, Dr. Mark Seary, a professor of psychology at the University of Buffalo. They released a report a few years ago. They went over 2,300 participants, looked at their experiences with adversity. Those who took part admitted that a moderate amount of hardship led to a higher life satisfaction and better mental health. It makes you more empathetic and more resilient. Uh, Again, these are things that our parents knew and didn't necessarily need studies for to learn. And those things are passed along to us. Yeah, think about it. I mean, Father Michael Schmidt says this great saying, and I just heard this, and you and I would recognize this being from a cold climate. He calls calls them... Well, parents who are, are, are trying to prevent any type of discomfort for their kids at all costs, he calls them Zamboni parents. <laughs> Go I ahead. love that, I, right? I do too. Go yeah, ahead. it's like, okay, we're always trying to clean everything up. We have yeah. to, every, The ice always has to be perfectly smooth for our children. And, and deep, you know, in our deepest heart of hearts, we want our, our grandkids, our grandnieces, our nephews, our kids not to suffer, but at the same time, they have to learn that they are going to struggle. And, and I look back on my own life, and I know you too. I mean, think about everything that you went through with your illness. Sure. But think about all, everything that happened in terms of the prayer, bringing the Catholic community yeah. together. Yeah. It happened at a time when Ave Maria Radio was not that well known. Right. And, and your suffering was, became a news story. People found out about the station. They found out about EWTN, about Catholic Radio, all these things. Yep happen if we can look back and we see god uses everything romans eight twenty eight. if we allow him allow him to do that yeah i i i was i felt i was blessed at that time because i actually did believe that god was using uh, sure. those circumstances yeah and it made it a lot easier uh to deal with the suffering that was in front of me um did you were you bored often when you were a kid um yes I would sit there in school because I love summer and I love the sunshine and I would look out the window and for longingly wait for summer to roll around. Then within two days, I'd be like, you know, I'm bored. What, what am I going to do? I'm bored. What's there to do? What can I do? And I, I think about it now and it was really, I think, very healing for me and I think reassuring, putting myself on my mother's shoes and I would say things to her like I'm bored. And I had a, I had a ton of toys. Again, we weren't rich, but I had, I had a lot of, of nice toys. And I could hear my mother, now hear my mother's voice in her own head thinking, she's bored. And when I was a kid growing up in Jersey City, I had nine brothers and sisters, and we all shared one bike, one sled. We didn't get many presents for Christmas. We were thrilled when we got, you know, a few pieces of candy in our stocking. Mm-hmm. And she's bored. Yeah. And so that's why I put that chapter in there on Go Ride Your Bike. Yeah. <laughs> Go ride your bike. You got a bike, a pretty pink bike sitting in your driveway. Go ride your bike. In other words, you know, let's take advantage of the things that we have and understand that we shouldn't be bored in this life. There's right. plenty to keep us occupied and we have to keep our mind working. And then the other chapter that's similar to that, which is really actually funny, and she actually said this to us, it's chapter six. If you want a pool, go fill up a garbage can. <laughs> and we did. We I complained because I thought my life was over because I didn't have a pool when I was a kid because my neighbors had a pool. And my mother's like, you're not getting a pool. You want a pool? Go fill up a garbage can. She was so fed up. And then I thought about that. I'm thinking, you know, she made a lot of sense because what she's telling me is make the most of what you have. what you got, yeah. What you have, right? Very good. Teresa, hold it there. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. 
Teresa Tommy, my guest, sharing with us what she learned from her mom, Rosie. The book is called Everything's Coming Up Rosie, 10 Things My Feisty Italian-American Mom Taught Me About Living a Godly Life. I'm Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. CMF Curo is a Catholic healthcare ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Millions of people have kicked off 2024 by making the traditional New Year's resolutions. Are you one of them? Are they related to your faith, your home life, your health? Let us know by going to AveMariaRadio.net and scrolling down to the poll of the week. Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. John, chapter 8, verse 51. Jesus is in a discussion with some of the leaders of the Jews. They're talking about Abraham. Abraham lived 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. So in the course of the discussion, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He says that often in the Gospels. He who keeps my word or believes in me will never die. To which the Jews say, Now we know you have a demon. And they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. All the patriarchs, the great men and women of the history of Israel. All these people died, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets, who died? And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. To which the Jews say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's the definition of frustration? Frustration is the difference between the way it is and the way you want it to be. It's hard to change the way it is. The way it is sometimes is other people, life, circumstances. 
The way you want it to be is in your power to change. You can close the gap between reality and what you want. The smaller that gap, the less your frustration. It is always easier to change oneself than to change reality. Frustration isn't always what happens out there. It is how we look at what happens out there. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Teresa Tamio. Everything's coming up rosy. Ten things my feisty Italian-American mom taught me about living a godly life. Something that uh, my parents, and I know from your book here, that uh, your mom, they had a way of kind of keeping you in your place. Um, Mm -hmm. Not not letting you think more highly of yourself than than you ought, as uh, St. Paul would put it. Uh, Tell me about uh, bumping into your mom and how she could prick your inflated ego. Well, chapter nine is never get too big for those britches. And she would say that to us over and over again. And she really said it to me when I made the transition many moons ago from radio to television. And I start that chapter out with an experience that I had. And and my mom was still well alive at that point. And I was shaking my head again, thinking she was right again. I was standing in the unemployment line in southeastern Michigan. This was right after I was fired from one of the big TV stations. And the first thing, I, all I thought of was when I was standing in line, and Al, you remember back in the in 80s and 90s yeah. when you had to actually show up at the office yeah. and file for unemployment versus doing it online. And it was packed. This is a time when the car industry was struggling and a lot of people were laid off. And so I'm in line and I'm just praying. I'm praying to the Lord that no one recognizes me. Now, prior to that, I loved being recognized, whether it would be at the Italian you know, food market or at or in, Church, I love that because I was a you know media personality, right? And and I was getting too big for my britches. So I'm standing there in the unemployment line, and there's this man who just keeps staring back. And I'm thinking, oh, please don't recognize me. Please let there be something in my hair, in my mouth, or something in my nose. And all of a sudden, he says very loudly in front of the whole unemployment office, it was packed. He says, aren't you Teresa Tamio? Didn't I see you on the news the other night? And thank the Lord, I have a quick wit, and I responded. I said, you know, people tell me I look like her all the time. <laughs> did you say that? <laughs> I did. And then I, everybody laughed, and then they just kind of forgot about it and went about their business and went back to reading their paper or their magazine. But I was so devastated. And I thought it went, when I was standing there, my mother's words came back to me, never get too big for those riches. And I thought about this also when we had the recent firing of both Tucker Carlson and Don Lamont, and not, not judging either men or not getting into where they stood politically, but both of them were considered pretty prominent media personalities mm-hmm. that were untouchable, right, for right. a variety of reasons. And then o- overnight, actually on the same day, they were both fired. And you try to tell people that these things, and this is what I learned being in broadcasting for eons, that everything is so temporary except God, yeah. faith, and family, right? Everything can be taken away from us in a moment's notice. And no matter how big we are, no matter how you know those britches are holding us up, it can change. And that's why we have to stay focused on Christ, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Where's, where's that phrase come from, too big for those britches? 
I, you know, it actually comes from um, back in the 1800s. I'm trying to remember because I did some research on it where uh, someone was talking about ways to keep up your pants, literally. It's, it's <laughs> about, about holding on to your britches. It's, yeah. it's actually kind of a neat story. I can't remember the details offhand. I have to go back to the chapter. But the whole idea is, you know, you, you, you're going to be at a certain place, but you have to remember where you came from, your roots. I remember reading a story once. This is really interesting. This isn't in the book, but it crossed my mind when I was actually writing the chapter. Uh, beautiful Princess Grace of Monaco. Of course, she grew up, her father was a bricklayer in Philadelphia. He, he was a, a guy who really worked with his hands and, and you know was a very down-to-earth type person. And she used to tell her children who were growing up right in Monaco in this beautiful, lavish lifestyle, don't forget your grandfather was a bricklayer. Mm. And that reminded me of my mom you know, never get too big for those britches. Where, you know, and my father used to tell me when I got into the news business, you'll be interviewing some pretty important people. Remember, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. So we're all equal in God's eyes. And, yeah. and I think this is what my mom was trying to pass on to me with never get too big for those britches. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's just interesting that the parents felt that they, that was a kind of a moral lesson that they believed right. had to be impressed upon Young people, especially mm-hmm. people like yourself, which had obvious uh, gifts and skills early on. I mean, I'm sure she saw, saw in you uh, what you were eventually to become uh, as a broadcaster, mm-hmm. as a communicator, as somebody who was well, She told me I came out of the womb talking. That's what she said to me. You know, she came out of the womb talking and she hasn't stopped. <laughs> That's good. That is great. <laughs> uh, the phrase, um, God spares, where's that come from? Oh, this is so interesting. So I, I could not understand and decipher what she was saying because when she said it with her Jersey accent, it was God spares, spares. And my mother-in-law always still, my mother-in-law Mary, who's still alive and well, thank God, always says God willing. Mm-hmm. And I finally asked her, I said, Mom, what are you saying? And she said, I'm saying God spares or God spare us. And what she was teaching us is actually from the letter of James, where James talks about, uh, don't say we are going to do this or that but say, if God wills it. And my mom, I don't know if my mom knew the scriptural reference for it, but I was in a Bible study years ago, and I remember coming across that verse, and I called to my mother, I said, my, you're so biblical, and I read her the verse, and she chuckled. But it really is very biblical, where St. James is trying to tell us that God is first. It's not that we don't plan and don't want to be organized and have a schedule, but to remember who's in charge, and it's not us. And so my mom had this, this definite sense that we needed to have our, prior, our priorities straight. That's why she always said God spares or God spares with, with her Eastern accent. And now the more I grow up, the more I'm always saying God willing or God spares. I say that all the time. And yeah. it's so true. Again, an, another example of how a biblical truth um, is just kind of woven in to the everyday culture family culture right yeah right and i think probably because of the the experience she had um, with the explosion where literally her life blew up before her own eyes uh, quite i mean it was it was so serious people died in that explosion we we had to move away from home that she realized that everything everything can be taken away can change you know on in a new york minute so therefore we have to make sure that we that we are right with god that, that if god if god wills it yes yes with this is great that we have this plan and we choose to say that when we're going on vacation or going to visit someone going to a party oh i can't wait to do this that, that's right it, it, that's going to be great but god spares god spares or god willing heard it all the time you you mentioned uh, the infamous uh, oven incident uh, in the book with oh, your mother yeah mm-hmm. what, what was that about mm-hmm. That was um, right after the explosion, and we moved in with my grandparents in Jersey City, 
And I can remember I was on the porch, and my mom was busy making a very nice dinner for my father. And she went to open, she bought some fresh fish. My father loved fish. She was making a big fish dinner, just trying to settle down and, and just kind of, you know, regroup after the explosion. And she opened the oven, and the oven literally exploded for whatever reason. Good and so heavens. her eyebrows, yeah, the eyebrow, her eyebrows were singed. She was severely burned on her arms. She did require emergency treatment. And all I remember is running downstairs after it happened. And I was on the, as we say in, in New York or on the East Coast, the stoop, you know, the steps. Yeah. And my yeah. sisters were there playing. And I ran down in my dress, Mommy got burned, Mommy got burned. And my sisters thought I was crazy. They didn't believe me. And my father was coming home at the time, coming back to my grandparents' apartment. And he looked at me, and he picked me up in his arms, and we ran upstairs, and he saw my mother, and he said, okay, that's it, we're going to the shore. And so we all went down to the shore for about, I think, about a week, and, went, you know, in an inexpensive uh, motel. And I yeah. have this beautiful picture of me and my father in the pool together that I treasure from that, from that time. But the incident, I think, really was pivotal in the sense that my father realized, okay, we, we have to do something. We have to, we have to get out of here. This is, this is too much. But mm -hmm. you think about that. They had just lost their apartment, their home. They're yeah. basically homeless. She goes to live with my grandparents. We go to live with my grandparents for a while. We're trying to, you know, have make some sense out of life and enjoy, you know, the basics. And then this happens, right? And she she was severely burned. Her arms were pretty badly burned. Although the salt water did help uh, quite a bit. But you know, those experiences left a mark on her. And I, th I and when writing, you know, when you're writing something, you go through these stages where you're reflecting, and it really caused me to walk in my mother's shoes yeah. and my mother and I did not have a great relationship I'd say we have a good relationship and we you know butt heads on a lot of things We're both very strong women mm -hmm. and she and I disagreed on a lot of things and she didn't always understand where I was coming from and I was very independent I was more of a daddy's girl which is interesting than I was a, a mama's girl oh. extremely close to my father close to my mother but even more so to my father and so I, I was raised my father raised me to be extremely independent and I did a lot of things on my own, like, for example, I should have written about this a book. I thought about this after the book was done. When I went to, when Dominic and I got engaged and I went to pick up my wedding gown, I found the gown in a magazine, and I went to a local bridal shop, and I said, that's the one I want, and I ordered it. Well, on my 35th wedding anniversary, she said to me, oh, yeah, the daughter who didn't even bring her mother to buy her dress. Uh, that was so heartbreaking for me. I said, Ma, it was 35 years ago. Get over it. <laughs> But she was very used to my two older sisters being very involved uh, in in her life. For example, I don't think they would have bought God love them both, you know, a uh, a box of um, Kleenex without consulting my mother, or yeah. you know, a new piece yeah. of furniture because she they, they wanted her opinion and everything. Where I love my mom, but it's like you know I could do this on my own. I'm okay. So that we kind of butt heads on on that issue and then some other things. But the older I think we both grew, and then we were ended up Dominic and I, and it was such a blessing although frustrating at times, dealing with her health care at the end of her life, we, I think, really got over all of that stuff that we experienced in earlier years mm -hmm. and became extremely close before she died. So, Yeah, you, you would never know your respect for your mom and your enjoyment of her. I think that's the thing that really is telling, is that you enjoyed her, at least in uh, you know, everything that outsiders could see. Right. Uh, so then uh, that the fact that you could enjoy her shows a very deep respect for her, uh, even if you did butt heads uh, now and then. Um, was she a joyful woman? 
Oh yeah, all the yeah. time. And everyone, I was <laughs> I was at the dentist a few weeks ago, and our, our dental hygienist Donna loved my mom, and she said your mom was always smiling. She just smiled, and she just made me laugh every everywhere I go. Still to this day, whether it's at my parish or at the local grocery store, because my mom knew everybody. She was very outgoing, very social. <laughs> they say, "Oh, we miss your mom. She was such a joy." And my pastor, Monsignor Bagheran, whom she called Monsignor, Monsignor, <laughs> loved loved Rosie, and he's so excited about the book. I think we're going to actually have an Italian night at St. Joan of Arc this summer and, and do a whole thing. Oh, that's great. Uh, the book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, she was she was a very incented out person. And the other reason I wrote the book is to tell folks that just because you may not have had a perfect relationship, but I'm very honest in the introduction. I say, look, my relationship with my mom was not something that a Hallmark movie producer would want to come and make a yeah. movie out of our lives. I mean, we had our challenges. Right. But at the end of the day, again, getting back to the basics, we have to honor our parents and love them the best we can. And, you know, and learn, you know, it's, it's okay to have a relationship with someone with whom you disagree about certain things, right? And I think this is what this book is for, not only for people to get back to the basics of life, but to stop canceling each other out because we don't agree with everybody in our family. I mean, how many families are divided yeah. over politics, yeah. right? Yeah. Now it's 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 become the lack of respect uh, for others, and learning how to be able to deal with people. You know, the, we're living in a culture where everybody's boasting about how we're supposed to get along with our differences, and yet more and more people are canceling right. one another out. Be tolerant, out. right? Be yeah. tolerant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're supposed to be tolerant, but we don't. We're not tolerant of anybody with whom we disagree. Yeah, yeah, and that's something again, which uh, our parents' generation. This idea of, quote, being tolerant is not something that they would have immediately thought of as a social virtue, but it's something that they frequently just did um, by virtue of the fact that you have to live with other people. You have to get along. You have to, you know, end up, you may have to uh, take a bitter pill, but you end up uh, recognizing the differences that you have may not be resolvable, and so you have to get on with life. Yeah, I mentioned that in, I forget which chapter it's in now, but I talk about the relationship that they had or tried to maintain for peace of the family with one of those. You know, you always have that aunt or uncle that's, uh, you know, somewhat of a pain and how I would want them to really, you know, go after them. And my parents would say, no, we have to look at the big picture here. That's not important enough. The bigger picture is the family relationship. Yeah. Not that they were supporting abuse or anything, but to understand that at the end of the day, we would still want to be a family. Yeah. Teresa, once again, great talking with you. And it's a wonderful book. Thanks, Al. Okay. Teresa Tomio, everything's coming up rosy. Ten things my feisty Italian-American mom taught me about living a godly life. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Father Benedict Rochelle. I must tell you that from what I observe from very young people, all of these blasphemers, all of these mockers are in for a tough time. Because the devil bites his own tail. And I find among young people, a growing reverence and longing for God. I find a decline in the cynicism and skepticism around. 
because it had to destroy itself. No one can live on being an enemy of God. It's too crazy. It's too absurd. It's too dark. It's too bleak. God is beautiful. God is holy. Why in the world mock God? The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. It only takes a few minutes to set up and provide assurance. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Thanks for joining us in that first hour. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on our conversation with Teresa. We'll, of course, have her book available there. And uh, be sure you can check her out every morning on her own program from uh, 9 to 10 Eastern Time. Teresa Tamio, host of Catholic Connection, always a, a good source of wisdom. Coming up in the next hour, we look ahead to the feast this weekend that we'll be celebrating, Epiphany and the Search for the Magi. You know, we talk about all these different Christmas films. One that I think is a little underrated is Nativity Story, because it really does a great job, I think, of showing the Magi, giving them a little bit of personality, showing their journey across um, following the star. Obviously, it takes a few creative liberties, but the portrayal of the special, I forget which wise man it is, but he's the one who, in the movie, is kind of grumpy until he finally meets Jesus. And I just love how that's portrayed. And... You know, the, the wise men are mentioned very briefly in Scripture, but there's really just not that much that we know about them. And so uh, in the next hour, Father Dwight Longenecker joining us, author of Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men, taking a deep dive into why we can actually believe that the, the, these wise men existed. They're not just pious legend. They're not just something created to you know fill out the last part of your nativity scene. That is our conversation in the next hour. Uh, more to come on Cresta in the afternoon. We'll be right back. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Friday, and welcome to another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. As you can tell, this is not Al. Uh, this is Bryant, his producer. You may have heard me in the first hour saying that if you were listening to yesterday's Cresta in the Afternoon, Al had a little bit of a tickle in his throat. You could call it a small frog in the throat that unfortunately has grown to a rather larger frog in the throat. 
Uh, Give them the weekend off. Uh, Lord willing, he'll be back Monday. But we are continuing our conversations today, looking back on some different uh, topics that we've discussed in the past. If you missed the first hour, we sat down with Teresa Tamio, who has shared some lessons on life from her street-smart Italian-American mother about how to regain a little bit of sanity in a world that is turning upside down. In this hour, we look ahead once again to Epiphany and the search for the Magi. On Sunday, we'll be celebrating the uh, Feast of Epiphany, of course. And uh, you could say it's probably one of the more beloved images of the Nativity story is the uh, three wise men on their camels, sometimes coming across the desert, you know, silhouetted against the moon, bringing these three gifts to the infant Christ. Uh, If you study the story more, you'll see, oh, of course, their gifts. Gold kind of makes sense. Uh, frankincense associated with royalty. Uh, But then there was always that question, why did one of them bring myrrh? Myrrh being something that was associated with death and burial. That's one of the things that we're exploring in this hour with Father Dwight Longnecker, who uh, answers a lot of different questions because this image of the wise men has become somewhat disputed in recent years. People ask, you know, are they, there's the classic song, We Three Kings, they weren't really kings, but what is a magi? What is a wise man? Um, some people like to say they didn't exist at all, and uh, they are just um, you know, part of pious legend. But there's a lot more to the story than that. And uh, Father Dwight Longnecker joining us with evidence for who the Magi were and why we can believe that they really visited the infant Christ. Father Longnecker is author of Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. Uh, you know him well. He's raised in evangelical home in Pennsylvania and uh, eventually became an Anglican priest in England. In 1995, he and his family were received into the Catholic Church, and since then he's become a prolific writer and author of several books. And uh, he joins us in this hour, coming up after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, January 5th. It's the Feast of St. John Neumann. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. American democracy is on the line in the 2024 presidential election. That, according to President Biden, stressed Americans today during a campaign stop near the famous Revolutionary War encampment at Valley Forge. The choice is clear. Donald Trump's campaign is about him, not America, not you. Donald Trump's campaign is obsessed with the past, not the future. Marking the three-year anniversary of the attack on the Capitol, Biden slammed Republican frontrunner Donald Trump and his allies for their attempts to keep Trump in power following his 2020 election loss. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine is banning gender transition surgeries for minors in the state. I signed an executive order just a few moments ago enacting emergency rules that ban gender transition surgeries for minors at any hospital or ambulatory surgical facility in Ohio. Uh, This ban is effective immediately. The move comes just a week after DeWine vetoed House Bill 68, which would have banned trans minors from receiving certain health care and would have prohibited trans females from participating in female athletics. DeWine also says he's putting new rules and protections into place, including requiring extensive mental health counseling prior to anyone being considered for treatment. Chinese Bishop Peter Shao has been arrested by Chinese security forces. During his arrest, authorities indicated that his attention will be for a prolonged time. Shao was made bishop by papal mandate in 2011 and isn't recognized by Chinese authorities. Reports from Asia News suggest his arrest is due to criticisms he has made of state-mandated changes in the diocese. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. 
good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Father Dwight Longnecker is a convert to the Catholic faith, coming into full communion uh, out of Anglicanism, although he was uh, he went to a very fundamentalist school originally uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, Bob Jones University, where he received a degree in speech and English. Uh, as he went on to study theology at Oxford, he eventually became an Anglican priest and eventually was received into full communion with the Catholic Church. Since then, He's been a prolific writer and author of a number of books. Most recently, Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. Father, thanks for joining me today, and uh, also thanks. We were with you in uh, Greenville just a few weeks ago, and you were an extraordinary host to uh, Nick and Sally and myself, and gave me the best church tour of my life, I think. Uh, you're there as pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary. Thank you. You know, you know, Greenville, South Carolina is a really dynamic place to uh, be a Catholic. Uh, it's ironic because it's also known as as the bu- the buckle of the Bible Belt. I know because um, Bob Jones <laughs> University is right here. I-, I think we're going to have to work on that and call it uh, the buckle of the Catholic Bible Belt. <laughs> it is. There's a lot going on there. It's a great great city for Catholics these days. And uh, Joseph, Joseph Pierce, the biographer, uh, lives here, and so does Kathy Schiffer, the blogger, and yep. uh, Steve Wood, uh, a noted radio personality. So um, it, it's a real interesting town. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was wonderful. And uh, we'll, we'll certainly be down there again to see you. But we talked about this book, uh, Mystery of the Magi. Everybody loves the story of the uh, three kings uh, riding their camels, uh, following the star to Bethlehem. And what's interesting about this is, on the one hand, uh, a lot of the popular um, imagery surrounding the three kings uh, is not really grounded in Scripture. And on the other, by the, on the other side of this, there are many uh, New Testament scholars who have treated the story of the Magi as though it's sheer legend, uh, not rooted in history. And you've decided to uh, go walk right between those two extremes. Tell me a little bit about your concerns. Well, it really is interesting because the Magi story, more than any other New Testament story, has been embroidered and um, embellished by uh, centuries of uh, legend and tradition. Some of them traditions... Um, established for good theological reasons, others simply because it was a beautiful story and people like to tell a fanciful tale, others because um, Gnostics and uh, heretics of different sorts also uh, capitalized on this wonderful tale of, uh, you know, mystical wizards from the East who followed a magical star. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to cut through all of those traditions and, and not necessarily dismiss all of them, but understand that it was because of these um, mystical, magical traditions that uh, an awful lot of scholars simply said, oh yes, the story of the magical star, that was all uh, a fancy, a fairy tale. It was a, it was a pious fiction that the Christians invented to make Jesus seem more special. Uh, and so I went back and uh, picked through that and went back to Matthew's Gospel and the Scriptures and did a lot of research into the history and the archaeology and the politics of the time uh, and came up with really some uh, astounding discoveries. Yeah, the story itself, the, the deeper you look, the more historically plausible it becomes. Is that right? Uh, yes. Uh, once you trim away uh, all of the kind of um, 
magical traditions and begin to look at the science and the history and the politics of the time, it fits perfectly with Matthew's yeah. gospel. So while while some people who love those traditions might be disappointed in my findings, uh, they should be encouraged to find that actually the, 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 the gospel account in Matthew uh, is absolutely spot on. Well, let's uh, let's uh, let's go on, and and we'll assume for the sake of our discussion today, because we don't have time to do everything. We'll assume that Matthew, uh, the tax collector, is the author of the gospel uh, attributed to him, and uh, we don't know anybody else whose name would be associated with this gospel. But so let me let me jump right to the magi themselves. What are magi? Well, the, may, the word magi or, or magi is rooted in the Persian word magoi, and it was translated into Greek, and the magi were initially uh, a caste of wise men, shamans, witch doctors, uh, dating right back to about the 7th uh, or 8th century BC in Persia, in what is now uh, northwest um, uh, Iraq, the area of Kurdistan, Kurdistan, and and basically where the the ISIS people are right now, yeah, was yeah. The, was the, where they were located. Uh, over the years, they became uh, adept uh, intellectuals, uh, mathematicians, astronomers, and advisors to the to the court of Persia. They also, over the years, adapted the Zoroastrian religion, uh, and. This is where the word magi comes from. It's also where we get the word magic or magician. Uh, and uh, the magi cast were the obvious um, sort of uh, suspects when you were looking for the biblical magi. And so most people who did treat them as historical said, oh, they, those are the Persian magi from uh, Persia who traveled to Bethlehem. But when I began to look at the history of the Persian magi, by the time of our Lord's birth, um, around 5 or 6 BC, probably, um, the, the Persian Magi were actually a spent force. They, they were not an important um, factor in Persia, but they had been spread all over the rest of the ancient um, Mideast. So you will find Magi in the court of, you know, in Egypt, in, in, uh, in Greece, in Rome, uh, in, the, in the Nabataean court. And that's where I, I discovered that um, they had settled uh, and indeed, Magi had become a generalized term for any kind of uh, courtier, wise man, intellectual, um, uh, and, and so forth. Was it always a respectable designation? Or, uh, you know, did people also pretend uh, to be of that, uh, that caste and that group, uh, but in fact were conmen? Well, of course, uh, in Matthew it says that Herod called his own wise men, and so the Jews would have had wise men as well. They were the prophets, they were the ones who understood the scriptures, they were the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Um, and so, um, depending on your culture, you had different kinds of magi, different kinds of wise men. Uh, and so, um, it was a generalized term, but for the Jews, magi from the east, from another kingdom, uh, would have been suspect because astrology was frowned on, mm. uh, any kind of um, superstitious religion and paganism was frowned on by the Jews. So it's interesting that Matthew records that these uh, non-Jewish magi came to Bethlehem. Would these non-Jewish magi have been monotheists? Well, the term monotheism is, uh, again, very interesting. I studied uh, the development of religion in the Old Testament times, and rather than saying this culture was 
polytheistic and this one was monotheistic. Uh, the, the reality is that the religions of the ancient Middle East developed from uh, animism and polytheism uh, into what's called henotheism, mm-hmm. and that is uh, where they believed in lots of different gods and goddesses, but there was one superior god above them all. So the other gods and goddesses were to be thought of more like uh, maybe demons or angels or demigods, um, gods who were uh, spiritual beings who were lower than the one uh, god who created all things. And this um, monotheism seems to have developed around the 6th century B.C., uh, both uh, within Zoroastrianism, but also as uh, Judaism continued to develop the monotheism, many scholars think uh, came into full focus and full flower later. So the concept, the idea of uh, Magi is is pretty broad. Uh, it has to do with wise men, uh, advisors, uh, shamans, I suppose, right? But so the to, to identify these particular magi, we really need to know where they are from if we're to learn what their skills were. Yes, and um, as my research began to uh, develop and unfold, one of the pointers was the prophecies of Isaiah that we read for Epiphany in Isaiah 60, where it says that the kings of Tarsus or the kings of Sheba and Ephah and Midian will come on dromedaries bearing riches of frankincense and gold. Mm-hmm. These passages are read as prophecies of the um, Magi. And I looked up where Ephah and Midian are, and they're in northwest Arabia. So I began to say, well, maybe there's some kind of a historical link here mm-hmm. where... Um, this is indicating where they came from. And in the time of our Lord's birth, uh, this territory was occupied by the Nabataean kingdom. And the Nabataean was a trading kingdom uh, controlling the very lucrative trade routes from Yemen in the east, uh, west to the port of Gaza, and uh, from Egypt north to Syria, Babylon, and further uh, into Asia Minor. And so, and Petra, their capital, was right at the crossroads of these two famous routes. They were fabulously wealthy, uh, and they were a very major player um, in the ro- early Roman Empire at the time of Jesus' birth. So, w- w- where do the Nabataeans come from? What is the history of that uh, group? It's very, very interesting, because um, they were a combination of three different factors. Uh, first of all, the Abrahamic tribes of the, the, the nomadic tribes from the Arabian Peninsula. We're talking about the Edomites and the Midianites and the, um, the other tribes who were circulating in that area. But then after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., a lot of Jews fled uh, not just to Babylon, but also uh, eastward into Arabia, where there were already Jewish settlements. And so uh, you have this second stream of the Jewish immigrants uh, from the destruction of Jerusalem, and then the Babylonians also controlled that territory at the time. So it's a kind of melting pot of these three factors, but um, this means that the Nabataeans had uh, A, Jewish background, B, a shared history in the Abrahamic religions, and see uh, the Babylonian influence, which, of course, is where the original Magi came from. So you have these three cultural influences together, which is a strong indicator that they would have had a keen uh, interest uh, in the uh, prophecies of the Jewish Messiah. So they, they they did believe in predictive prophecy then? Well, they did, and yet 
we have to be careful. We're, it's very easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that the Old Testament prophecies were kind of like uh, old, old-fashioned fortune-telling. Right, right. Mm-hmm. In, instead of that, we have to understand it as being more predictive uh, than being some always a supernatural insight into the future. It, it could be a supernatural insight into sure. the future, but it could also be a bit like weather weather predictions, uh, reading the signs, reading right. the, uh, the signals, and drawing certain conclusions. Right. Uh, Father, hold it there. We're going to continue in just a moment. The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. It's an outstanding uh, new book, new study by Father Dwight Longnecker. We're going to continue in just a moment. I'm Al Cresta. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. You've probably heard Venerable Father Patrick Payton say, the family that prays together stays together. Well, as the director of the Payton Institute, I like to add that the family that plays together also prays together. Family play rituals like family days, game nights, and other similar activities aren't just fun things to do. They're ways Catholic families remind each other to celebrate the life God has given them. Daily play rituals remind families that both in good times and in hard times, God always wants us to look for reasons to rejoice. That's one reason family rituals for playing together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, Visit CatholicCounselors.com. What constitutes hope? The Catholic Catechism tells us when God fully reveals himself and calls man, man cannot respond on his own. He must hope that God will give him the capacity to love and respond and act in conformity with the commandment of charity. Hope confidently expects divine blessing and the beatific vision of God while fearing to offend him and incur punishment. Despair is a sin against hope because when a man despairs, he ceases to hope for his eternal salvation, which denies God's goodness, justice, and mercy. The sin of presumption, on the other hand, assumes God will give you forgiveness without conversion and glory without merit or presumes that man can win his salvation with no supernatural assistance. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. That idea of suffering is one of the reasons many people either turn away from God or they ignore faith altogether because they cannot comprehend or wrap their heads around suffering and all the suffering in the world. This is an issue for you, and it's, it's an issue for all of us from time to time when we go through rough situations, to say, Lord, what do you want me to learn about suffering? Ask the Lord to help you understand the meaning of suffering. God doesn't waste his time with anything. Whatever you go through, he will use if you allow him to use it. And you look at the greatest evil, right? The killing of God, Jesus, the Son of God on the cross, And what came out of that? Our salvation. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit.
Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Dwight Longnecker. He is a pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary in Greenville, South Carolina. Also a prolific writer and uh, recently has contributed to uh, uh, New Testament uh, studies of the Magi in a book called Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. I was asking about a prophecy, predictive prophecy, and uh, again, it can have a supernatural origin, but prophecy can also be in the sense of the wise being able to distinguish the signs of the times and uh, get a good sense in which the culture is moving or what might be likely given certain assumptions about uh, God, uh, his plan in the future. Uh, Were these uh, wise men, were these magi, uh, first of all, were they Nabataeans? Well, I think they were Nabataeans, because uh, as I did the research, uh, Al, it was so interesting how all the different pieces of the puzzle just fell together. Um, And they have to do with uh, the three gifts and their significance, uh, Herod the Great and his significance, uh, the star, the Mm -hmm. fact that the Nabataeans were, uh, were astrologers and had a very strong astral dimension to their religion. Uh, and the history of the Nabataeans and uh, their relationship to the politics and economics of the time, all the things fit together to come up with the solution that the the wise men were uh, Nabataean magi, uh, courtiers at the uh, court of King Aratus IV of Nabataea, who were going to pay, first of all, a diplomatic visit to Herod the Great, only to pay homage to this newborn king of the Jews, who they assumed was a grandson or a son of Herod the Great, yeah. um, and that they therefore made the relatively short journey uh, from Petra to Jerusalem to pay homage. So, let, so they would have been um, sensing that. Uh, how would they have sensed that there was this uh, birth uh, to occur, and? Sensing that, would they have just been, would this just been a regular diplomatic uh, mission? They're going there to maintain good relations between uh, the uh, well, the Jewish people and the Nabataeans? 
I think several different things came together. First of all, I believe they were very much aware of the uh, prophecies of Isaiah. Some scholars believe that the prophecies of Isaiah about the coming Messiah were actually written from this same from Jewish communities in this same territory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also the territory which is close to the Qumran community and the um, you know the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, therefore, I believe they knew the the prophecies of the Messiah. Uh, with their Zoroastrian influence, there was also a strand within Zoroastrianism looking forward to a new, the birth of a Messiah. But it also brings in the, uh, the star, the famous star of Bethlehem. And many scholars now believe that the star was actually a configuration of different astrological signs, which the uh, wise men in Nabataea saw and read as uh, producing, uh, indicating the birth of a newborn king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And so I think these different factors all came together, and uh, the fact that um, Aratus IV, the king of Nabataea, had every motivation to to groom a good relationship with uh, Herod the Great uh, meant that they, they were sent on this diplomatic okay. mission, uh, mm-hmm. which also had the, the dimension of perhaps looking for the Messiah. Now, uh, you mentioned that the, the religion of the Nabataeans had an astral quality to it uh, that immediately makes us think of astrology. What was astrology in the ancient world compared to what we see uh, from people who play around with their daily horoscopes? Right. Astrology in the ancient world was actually almost universal. It was believed right across the ancient Middle East, and indeed also in China and in other um, primitive cultures. And also in the ancient Middle East, it was, it was very complex. Uh, there was a form of Egyptian astrology, Babylonian astrology, and Greek uh, astrology. And all three different schools studied the heavens and charted the movements of the planets and understood the constellations, and they believed that by studying what happened above, they could predict and understand what was happening below, because they saw the entire cosmos, the heavens and the earth, as being one organic unity. Uh, And if you understood how things were happening in one part of it, you could predict what happened in another part. Uh, And therefore, uh, the study of ancient astrology is very arcane and very, very difficult and complex. But those who do spend time on this study um, reveal that uh, astrology was universal in the ancient world, and therefore the Magi, like the wise men in any culture uh, at the time, would have been adept astrologers. Okay. So within the world picture of uh, the Nabataeans, this would have been um, no more uh, unusual than astronomy for us today? Yes, and remember, astrology for them was combined with astronomy. And modern astronomy, this, uh, the, what we know from modern astronomy, has very much emerged out of those ancient cultures. Yeah. In other words, some of the discoveries they made there uh, in their study of astronomy slash astrology has come over to us. We, we now separate it out, and astronomy is, a, is, is an objective science, right. uh, which we have in our modern world, but it has its roots in what they were doing back then. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so talk to me about this configuration. Uh, uh, what, what was the astronomical uh, features of this configuration that they thought was significant? Well, I should say there are two or three different theories about this, okay. but to put it very simply, to put it very simply, um, the different planets, and when the New Testament talks about a star, they would not have distinguished between a star and a planet. 
And the different planets were assigned um, different characters. So, for instance, Jupiter is the important one, and Jupiter was this that had the significance in, uh, of being a, a royal planet, uh, indicating a king or a monarch. And the constellations um, in, the, in the night sky were assigned to different geographical areas or different nationalities. And again, the different traditions of astrology had different assignations. So, for instance. Um, Pisces, the fish, was may have been assigned uh, to the, to Israel and to the Jewish nation, and uh, I don't remember the specifics, but let's say uh, Virgo, the Virgin, might have been assigned to Egypt. Well, when the astrologers then therefore saw the planet Jupiter rising, and remember Matthew says that the wise men said we saw his star rising. Right. So when they saw the planet Jupiter rising in the constellation associated with. Um, with the Jews, let's say Ares the ram, then they would have said, oh, a king is rising in for the Jews. And therefore, they would have made the connection uh, and looked for a, new, a newborn king of the Jews. Hmm. Now, th- that's we, the simple version. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, I, I understand that some, some of these things are not uh, always nailed down yeah. uh, as tightly as we'd like. But uh, it's again, it's fascinating to me that they were carrying out a diplomatic mission, that they were themselves uh, students of the cosmos, and they were looking uh, to the the stars, and they saw something unusual. They read, uh, there was a, it was a, it wasn't just um, uh, masses of hot gas they were looking at, they were looking at uh, a universe in which these uh, astronomical phenomena were meaningful, they were able to read them. Um, how long a trip would it have been? Well, if they did come from Petra, the journey would have taken uh, on horseback maybe three to five days, depending uh, on their route. Okay. And they would have traveled on well-known uh, um, paths uh, for, their, for, the tr- for their trading routes that they already had established. And they probably would not have ridden camels. They would have ridden horses, because we've all heard of Arabian horses. Yeah. Uh, and the Nabataeans were expert at breeding Arabian horses. So for a nobleman to make uh, a five-day journey from Petra to Jerusalem along good roads with good stopping places, they would most certainly have ridden on horseback. Um, but remember, if people are uh, un- disturbed to find that the journey was not a long journey on camels across the desert wasteland following a magical star, Matthew never says it was. These were later traditions that developed over the years. Um, he doesn't say they went on a long journey. He doesn't mention camels. Um, and so uh, these things have developed over the years, which are not necessarily true. And where do we get the idea of three? Uh, again, Matthew doesn't say there were three, and it doesn't say there were kings. So yeah. it's about everything in that well, well-beloved carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are, is probably wrong. Um, but we, it developed very early that there were three and there were kings, again, from uh, drawing the conclusion that there were three gifts, so there must have been three. Indeed, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, ha- there's a tra- tradition that there were twelve. There were other ancient traditions that were there were four or two. Um, so, again, uh, these are later traditions sure. which developed. And the significance of the gifts themselves? Well, this is really interesting. Um, a theological symbolism developed that gold stood for Jesus' royalty and uh, incense st- stood for his divinity, for worship, and myrrh for his 
uh, ultimate death, to anoint him in death. But these were theological symbols assigned later. In fact, uh, they indicate that the wise men came from Arabia, because uh, in ancient times, uh, Arabia was famous for its gold mines, and also frankincense and myrrh is taken from the sap, which grew, which from particular bushes and trees, which grow only in Arabia and East Africa. And this was the area the Nabataeans controlled. Therefore, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh were kind of like their cash crops. They were representative mm-hmm. gifts from their, from their country to another country. Uh, did they have any prophetic significance uh, from those Isaiah prophecies? Um, what, the frankincense and myrrh? Yeah, mm-hmm. No, no, okay. it's it's not there in the Bible anywhere. These were later traditions which um, preachers and theologians assigned to the gifts, and we can still use those symbolisms, but we should understand that that they're not there in Scripture. And then uh, they went to Herod. It was a friendly diplomatic mission, uh, but they end up uh, not returning uh, to Herod uh, after the discovery of the Christ child. Uh, how were they warned? What can you tell us from the biblical text and from the likelihood of history why they didn't go back to Herod? Well, well first of all, I, I hope you don't mind me just pointing out how interesting Herod is to the whole story. Sure. Because Herod was, Herod's mother was actually a Nabataean princess, and as a boy, he and his siblings were brought up in the Nabataean court. Furthermore, during his reign, he'd had constant relations with the Nabataeans, who were his neighbors directly to the east. He was at war with them at one point, then he was making alliances with them, uh, he was trading partners with them, and so... Uh, the wa- Father, I'll tell you what, the music just came up. Can you stay with us a few more minutes? Yeah. Okay, good. We'll, Absolutely. We'll pick it up uh, on the other side of the break and continue talking about, again, Herod's uh, relationship uh, to the Nabataeans. And again, the mission of the wise men, the Magi, to Herod. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. It only takes a few minutes to set up and provide assurance. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. 
Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's looking back at you at age 22? What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well, the way kids are turning out nowadays, counting my blessings. Parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say he's one in a hundred? Morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred. Then you be a one in a hundred parent. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. John 6, verses uh, 48 to 58. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread, meaning me. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and never die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh at which the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're scandalized by this. How is it that we're not? How is it that we just hear this and go, Oh yeah, I know that passage. They're just outraged, and at least perplexed. Sane people, inspired teachers, wise men, prophets, don't say things like this. Good afternoon, I'm Al Trusted with Father Dwight Longnecker, pastor, award-winning blogger, a freelance writer, a graduate of Oxford University. He's written 16 books on various aspects of uh, religion, and we're looking at his most recent contribution, Mystery of the Mag- Magi, or Magi, the quest to identify the uh, three wise men. And uh, we're looking at what the scripture actually says uh, and what are later traditions but we're also drilling down to find out the historical uh, meaningfulness and historic plausibility of the biblical story. They, uh, the mission to Herod was a diplomatic mission, and what was Herod's relationship, again, to the Nabataeans? Uh, yes, his mother was a Nabataean princess, uh, and he was brought up at the um, court of uh, the Nabataeans for a time during his childhood. And throughout his reign, he had uh, various relations with them. They were his neighbors directly to the east. So at one time, he was at war with them. At other times, uh, they were making raids on his territory. Uh, He was trading partners with them. So uh, this political relationship with the Nabataeans uh, adds a real interest to the story. Uh, When Matthew says all of Jerusalem was in an uproar when the the Magi arrived, 
this would have been because uh, they knew that they were Nabataeans and that they were on this diplomatic and political mission. Uh, and they probably traveled with an entourage of soldiers and, and uh, various other sort of functionaries. And, and this would have been quite a big deal when they arrived in Jerusalem to visit Herod. Would they have been suspicious that there was trouble brewing or would have been seen as friendly neighbors? Oh, no, completely suspicious, because um, not too long previously, uh, Herod had been at war with the Nabataeans. Mm -hmm. And just at the time of our Lord's birth, uh, the political situation was such that the Nabataeans had every motive to build bridges and to make friends with Herod. Herod was famously paranoid. He had, not too long before, killed two of his sons, suspecting them of uh, plotting to take over his his throne. Uh, And so, um, yes, it would have been full of political turmoil and and suspicion and, um, you know, what are the Nabataeans up to now, and and all that typical sort of um, political intrigue. And again, Jesus is being born into uh, an environment in which there are these suspicions and these fears. what would they? What would the uh, <clears throat> Magi have expected? Were they expecting to see a descendant uh, of uh, Herod being born, uh, so that it was expected that this would be continuity with the past, or were they expecting some event which would be discontinuous with the past? Well, you know, we have to remember that in their day and age. Religion and politics were not separate. Right. Very often, the, the the emperors and the kings were treated as divine. Indeed, they were sometimes worshipped. And so, I believe that the Magi were coming on a diplomatic mission, believing that there was a newborn heir to Herod the Great, mm-hmm. uh, and that he would be the new king of the Jews. But they were also aware of the messianic prophecies, uh, and believing that perhaps this king of the Jews was also uh, the great Messiah who was to come. And so they were filled with anticipation, uh, both politically and religiously, looking for this um, this child who was born. And how would they have discovered the child? I mean, how, moving from Herod to the child, how did that happen? Well, remember Matthew says that um, when they got to Herod's court, uh, Herod didn't have any idea that there was a newborn right. king of the Jews. Uh, and so he asked his wise men, who said, well, he'll be born in Bethlehem. No doubt Herod was thinking, did one of my sons who I've killed, did, did they have a mistress? Did mm-hmm. they have a, a wife I didn't know about? Mm-hmm. Is there another heir out there somewhere or a, a possible heir that, that no one uh, informed me about? And so Herod then questions the wise men, and we know that um, he then went on to slaughter all the boys two years old and younger. Um, So we're suspecting, therefore, that the wise men came a little bit after Jesus' birth, when Jesus was a toddler, Mm -hmm. and uh, Herod um, wanted to track them down and, you know, find out and and eliminate this potential um, threat to his throne. Um, The wise men were warned of this in a dream, and they departed back to their country a different way. Yeah, so they would have—would they have been surprised then that Herod was ignorant of this king, this new king? I think I think they were totally surprised, yeah. uh, and uh, therefore they sort of scratched their heads and said, well, where do we go now? And the, um, the, the scribes and the wise men of, of Herod said, well, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Now, if my— if my theory is right, they already had uh, ridden past 
Bethlehem, coming north to Jerusalem. So they would have turned to retrace their steps mm. and go back down to Bethlehem. Uh, they would have known where Bethlehem was. Um, but then uh, the gospel says that the star uh, stopped over the house where the young child was, and then they knew and they had it confirmed. Uh, how that star stopped and what it means, of course, is also very interesting. Yeah, that's what uh, I was going to ask you. In my book, the, uh, the, the astronomers have an idea about what that actually meant. I mean, could it be? Uh, could you calculate from the position of a star where a particular uh, family was living? I mean, I, that's what I've never been able to figure well, out. The pla- yeah, there's a couple of theories. One is that when the planets um, are in their orbit, uh, that when you observe them at one particular point, um, it's an optical illusion, but it seems that the planet actually stops and reverses mm. its cycle. It's called a retrograde motion. Mm-hmm. And some of the scholars who've looked into this believe that at that point, Jupiter, the star that or planet they were tracking, did this retrograde motion, and that explains that the, um, the, the, the Matthew's words that the star stopped over the place where the young child was. Um, another uh, theorist, Colin Nichol, has um, written a book which is very interesting called The Great Christ Comet, uh, and he theorizes that at the same time there was a, a magnificent comet in the sky, uh, and this comet would have had a tail, and that uh, he calculates that this comet actually stopped over the house where Jesus was. So there's different theories out there, all of them very intriguing. Yeah. I, the reason I'm asking is because if I look up in the sky and I see uh, some sort of heavenly sign, uh, astronomical sign, I, that would be compatible with any one of a number of locations on Earth. Is, was there, is there some kind of uh, calculus uh, that they would employ in order to locate an address? Um, again, this is highly technical. The, um, the the people who write on this would be able to explain it better than I can. Um, <coughs> excuse me, we have to also allow that Matthew may himself may have misunderstood uh, some of the details of mm-hmm. the story sure. uh, and, and written it in such a way that, that, that expresses it the way we have it now. Uh, and we have to also allow that there may, may have been a <coughs> um, a genuine supernatural sign from heaven right. uh, indicating where Jesus was born. So sure. we don't rule out the supernatural, right. um, but the Church teaches us to always look for the natural explanation first. Yeah, sure. Uh, now, t- t- recognizing um, that uh, Herod w- w- was—let uh, me, let me rephrase this. Let me go back. How many—how many, how large was the slaughter of the innocents? Was that a large number of children? Well, a lot of uh, scholars dismiss that as being histori- as being non-historical because there's no uh, other historical record of this happening. Um, nevertheless, those who believe it's historical say, "Well, this would be in totally in keeping with Herod's character." Um, you know, he bumped right. off one of his wives, two of his sons, and, and just about anybody who he thought might be a threat to his throne. And so uh, the idea that he would go in and slaughter all the boys under the age of two in a particular town is totally in keeping with what we know about Herod. Um, But it's difficult to say because uh, Bethlehem at that time was also um, a very insignificant little village. Right, right. one of the problems with finding the historical roots of, of the uh, infancy narratives is that Bethlehem itself has almost 
no archaeological record of a settlement being there at the time. Mm-hmm. So Bethlehem at the time may very well have been just a collection of little farm farming um, families um, living in caves and in simple dwellings um, with v- very little sort of um, evidence of a town there of any size at all. So Again, if Herod marched in and killed all the boys two years old and under in the Bethlehem district, the numbers might have been actually very small right. and therefore didn't register in any of the historical records. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember uh, Dr. Paul Meyer at Western Michigan University years ago uh, looked into this. Uh, he is a Lutheran layman, but also a professor of ancient history. And he thought the numbers were relatively small. I'm trying to remember now if it was a two dozen, but it wasn't hundreds is what he, his claim was. Uh, so, right. so if we put the, what we do know together, um, Bethlehem was a very small farming community, um, and uh, the boys under the age of two, yes, it, it could have been no more than a couple of dozen. Yeah. Now, what happens uh, to the wise men? Uh, they did, of course, they decide they don't report back uh, to Herod, but what do we know about uh, what happens when they leave? Well, this is where I began to speculate, because all Matthew does is say that the wise men, uh, having been warned in a dream, departed to their own country in a different route. Now, this is mysterious, because I'm suggesting that um, not only was Herod tracking them down, but um, Aretas IV, their king, might might have been informed by Herod's agents that these renegade wise men uh, were out there, uh, and that they had escaped, and that therefore if they went home, Aretas IV, their own king, might very well have slaughtered them. Uh, He was known to be just as ruthless as Herod. So knowing this, um, I suggested that they took a northerly route north of um, the Dead Sea, uh, where there was a road that would have connected with the north-south route from Petra, and they might have gone up to the city of Damascus. Now, Mm. Damascus was um, had been part of Nabataean territory, but at that time was controlled by the Romans. Therefore, they would have found a sympathetic home in Damascus, um, but also would, would have been out of touch uh, and out of the control of both Aratus and Herod. So, it, it, again, putting together the facts and doing a little bit of sleuthing, one might suspect that they went to Damascus. Now, the other interesting thing about Damascus is that this is where St. Paul goes some 34 years later right, right. Uh, to persecute the early Christians. And um, there's a tradition that St. Paul was actually converted uh, at uh, a, a, a castle named Kokbar, which means star, and that... Um, the Coke bar was occupied by the Essenes, the, uh, the, the Jewish sect uh, associated with the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and after his conversion, uh, in Galatians, Paul tells us that he went to Arabia for right. three years. Yeah. Why did he do that? Yeah. Uh, and so I'm speculating that perhaps. And, and we're going to have to leave. It. We're going to have to leave it there because of the time. Father, thank you. Mystery of the Magi, Father Dwight Longnecker. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. The devil will always do his best to tempt you into sin until you get to that place where you love sin. That's what he wants. He wants you down there with him. And not because he loves you, he hates you. 
When you do what the enemy tempts you to do, he does it out of pure hatred. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Millions of people have kicked off 2024 by making the traditional New Year's resolutions. Are you one of them? Are they related to your faith, your home life, your health? Let us know by going to AveMariaRadio.net and scrolling down to the poll of the week. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. I often have people ask me, aren't you scared when you talk about the issues such as abortion or uh, all the different ideologies, especially the gender ideology? I say, I'm scared of what I don't say if I'm not using this platform that God gave me wisely and well. If I'm not sharing information with people, if I'm not sharing the truth of the Catholic faith, I'm going to be held accountable, as is any one of us who has a platform. And we all have a platform. The sizes and the extent are different. But every single person, especially if you have a computer and if you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, you have a platform. And so we're all responsible to evangelize. And we make be fearful, but we move through that fear with trust that God is with us. He tells us he will give us the words. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Thanks for joining us over the last two hours and joining us throughout this week on Cresta in the Afternoon. Uh, we'll, of course, have all the material from today's program available for you in the Cresta Guest Archives at AveMariaRadio.net. You can uh, follow up and get a hold of Teresa Tamio's book if you're interested on uh, Everything's Coming Up Rosie and the street smart lessons she learned from her Italian-American mother. Also, we'll have Father Longnecker's book for you, Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. Uh, one topic we didn't get to today was today's Feast of St. John Neumann. One of those saints who it's easy to mix up. You know, there's John Neumann, John Henry Newman, two very different people. Uh, John Neumann, Philadelphia is Bishop and America's Saint. And there's a great piece that currently posted at the National Catholic Register that we'll share as well at our website. And we'll put it on our Facebook and Twitter pages, looking at how this man who became the fourth bishop of Philadelphia and uh, the impact he had on American history. You know, Kevin D. Camilla writing this blog piece that I'm talking about uh, is actually from Niagara Falls, New York, where Bishop Neumann spent a considerable amount of time. And Neumann lived at a time, there's the uh, so-called Know Nothing Party, a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment in America. One of those things that a lot of uh, people who study history, it's kind of easy to overlook, is how far Catholics have come in the U.S. from rising up from the time when uh, we were viewed with a lot of suspicion. Those of you who remember Kennedy's election back in the 60s, even as recently as that, there were people saying, oh, if Kennedy gets elected, he's going to have a hotline going straight to the Vatican to receive his orders of the day. Of course, that didn't happen. And now we're at a point where Catholics are becoming a really influential part of American society and American politics. And heck, we're even influential enough to have our own Eucharistic revival in Indianapolis this summer. More to talk about next week on Cresta in the Afternoon. Catholic Answers Live is coming up. Until then, have a blessed weekend. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 
to follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.